This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. Stephanie Eppe is a former professional dancer, experienced senior nonprofit leader, and an educator committed to a vision of social and educational equality. With a strong track record in nonprofit leadership and strategy, Stephanie has served as a senior staff member for the National Youth Employment Coalition in Washington, D.C., and at Pera Los Niños in Los Angeles, California, where she led programming, strategic planning, evaluation, and quality assurance efforts. She is a member of the Board of Directors for Everybody Dance Now, where she also led the organization as an interim executive director in 2014. Stephanie holds a Ph.D. in psychology from the University of Southern California. I spoke with Stephanie in Escazú, Costa Rica. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast with me today. Hi, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Tell me about what your current role or your current position with Everybody Dance Now is. Well, it's an interesting time for me because I joined Everybody Dance Now about uh, over a little bit over a year ago, uh, going on two years almost, actually, now that I look at the month we're in, and um, as a board member. And I was very interested um, in joining as a staff member, but ended up doing something else. And I got my chance to lead the organization recently for three or four months as their interim executive director while we looked for someone who could do so full time. And we just found that person. So I'm back to being a board member uh, with Everybody Dance now. Tell me about what types of qualifications are usually expected from someone who is brought on to be a board member of a nonprofit or, you know, maybe as you've been a board member and you search for other people to come on, what, what, what are the qualities and the, the qualifications you look for in someone? Sure. It's actually being a board member, um, has uh, several aspects that are very important to any kind of nonprofit. So while the nonprofit itself, uh, the size of the nonprofit and the legal and fiscal aspects of governing that nonprofit will, will change a little bit and determine what kind of qualifications a board member will have. Overall, there are certain elements that kind of cut across um, nonprofit boards. The nonprofit Board of Governance uh, really has the responsibility of hiring and firing the leader, the executive director, and of ensuring that the vision and the mission of the organization are staying true to the operations and making sure that the organization is uh, acting in a fiscally responsible matter, uh, manner. And so all of that embedded in the concept of making sure that the programs are high quality, that the funds, the public funds that are being utilized are uh, being utilized for the purpose stated. Uh, so we look for any board members to, first of all, have an interest in what the organization is doing, whether it's uh, dance education, it's arts, it's um, animal welfare, any of those things, having a passion and an interest in that and a belief that a difference needs to be made is, I would say personally, uh, one of the most important factors. Would you, uh, would you say that you also look for more than lip service? Absolutely. You know, many people come and say, oh, you know, I'm really passionate about helping children in poverty. Do you also look and say, hey, how have you actually taken action in that? Yeah, I mean... We do ask that, but it's not necessarily that it is required that you have a history of action in it. The reason why being passionate or having an interest for it is important is because it is not a paid position. Being a board member is a voluntary position in the nonprofit world, which is mm -hmm. different from the for-profit world. So if you're not interested and don't believe in the mission, then, you know, you'll probably end up not attending, not going to the meeting meetings, not being as invested. So I see that as one uh, important element of it. But the board should really, in, in some ways, represent the diversity and the characteristics of the population being served. That is considered best practice in nonprofit boards so that you can ensure that the interests and the different aspects of the, of the people, of the area, of the community being served is being represented by the different aspects. So you mm -hmm. want to have a diverse board in when it comes to 
um, you know, ethnicity, age, gender, religion, all of those aspects. Uh, but it, you really need a board for a board of, of directors to function properly for a nonprofit. You need a board who is ready to take action. And part of that is also the responsibility to play a role in fund development. So you want boards um, who are willing to go out there and speak on your behalf and either make personal donations uh, themselves, which is considered best practice nowadays, um, organizations, when you're applying for a grant, they oftentimes want to see 100% personal board giving, uh, but also joining in conversations, making introductions to potential donors, um, strategic decision-making, that sort of thing. So not only being passionate about what the mission and vision is for the organization, but then another key quality is clearly the ability to network, the ability to connect, the ability to uh, and the willingness to go out and uh, hit the pavement. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. That is that is uh, one of the most important aspects, especially today where funding is so limited. Uh, and both the foundations, family foundations, want to see that the board believes in it. The connection between the board and the staff and, and the actual uh, population being served or matter being served is a key factor in how others will give to the organization. And in nonprofit, we depend on public funds uh, and private funds, particularly uh, nowadays. But you also want to have a board that uh, kind of can cover all of your elements. So a, a nonprofit board will be fantastic if you have people that are in very different areas. So uh, a member maybe that knows the world, in, in the case of Everybody Dance now, somebody who has been a dancer or knew personally the magic of dance and the, the transforming power it can have. You want a lawyer. You want someone in the banking industry. You want someone in the fundraising world. Um, what you want to do is create a group of people with different uh, skill sets that can really guide the organization in a, in a transparent way by bringing in their opinions and their guidance that hopefully comes from different perspectives rather than everyone thinking the same way. What's a typical term for a board member? Is it a year, two years? It's very different uh, depending on the organization. So that's something that the the, the actual nonprofit uh, founder and the bylaws will determine, and that can change. Uh, there are organizations I know don't have terms at all. That's not considered best practice nowadays. Um, there are some that have very short terms, like a one year. Uh, for Everybody Dance Now, we're just starting a brand new board. Uh, we've been working, uh, focusing a lot uh, on board development and bringing the right kind of board um, with us. So we we what you do is in our case we look to have a term for the officer position. So you'll have a board chair, a finance chair, uh, different kind of officer positions, and with those uh, you want to stick to a year or two for um, your tenure, and then you want to make sure that it gets, uh, you know, switched around. But board members, in, in reality, if you have a committed board member, you can be there your whole life. Mm. Have you ever, that's interesting, sort of a Supreme Court judge, um, have you yeah. ever had the unfortunate experience or, or witnessed the unfortunate experience of, you know, a bad apple, so to speak, on a board where they had to be removed, or and how would that? How might that happen? Yes, I've I've actually experienced uh, that in two ways. That's happened in one organization where it wasn't. I I wouldn't label it a bad apple, but it was someone who had been there for many, 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 many years throughout various leadership transitions. And so there is a high level of commitment and interest and empowerment that comes with it. That is sometimes for a board member can be difficult to navigate and to uh, know when the boundaries are being crossed or when the influence uh, is, is too strong. So it makes it challenging to bring in new board members because they feel there's already this power struggle there. And for new board members, to kind of, you know, 
feel free to really voice their concerns or their opinions. And that individual was there for for such a long time that the, the political aspects get tricky too, because then they establish relationships of support and donors and big entities that have given to the organization for a long time. So unless there's true damage being done, uh, it's a strategic decision about whether, mm-hmm. you know, you ask them to leave or not. And that, in that case, that person didn't leave. Uh, and, and it was just a really challenging, role for the executive director and the CEO to be able to manage all of that. And uh, that's when good, strong uh, leadership is critical. In other cases, you have, um, in, in a more recent circumstance, uh, you know, board members who are just not present who are there have mm. it on their on their resume but they never show up they don't do they don't uh, you know they everyone has a commitment for a certain amount they have to give or get uh for the organization and they're just kind of missing in action with very little action and more missing there so um so what ends up happening is that the 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 board votes on the matter discusses the matter certain aspects are tried communications letters this sorts of thing and if they don't themselves say you know okay yes it's my time to go i really don't have the time uh to fulfill my commitment uh then you vote them off so the board the remaining board actually takes a vote and and they decide whether to vote off this person or not. Mm. Take take me through the the on this topic through the genesis of Everybody Dance now. I'd love to hear a little bit about its founding, you know, what 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 sort of the aha moment was for the for the founder and, and those kinds of things. I I think that there's kind of a nice story there. But then when you're putting a board in place, you know, you've you've made the decision to to start a nonprofit and to start this going forward. My my better sense is that, you know, People usually reach out to friends, family, people who are near them that they can, you know, quote unquote, trust. What are some advice that that you might give to someone who's starting a nonprofit right now about how to get that initial board in place? Yeah, those are those are great questions and so important. So I will um, go to your first question first about everybody dance now and how it came to to be. And it's really, you know, it's a remarkable story and. Uh, uh, the organization's founder will really would be able to give you the, the, the personal touch and the long detailed story. I will try to do my best to, to give her the credit, um, that she has, but everybody dance now. One of the, the remarkable elements of this organization is that it was youth founded, uh, and it is, continues to be youth led. Um, I'm not as young as I sound. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is part of why uh my position as executive director was really meant as an interim position so um because we look for the organization to continue to be uh youth led which is where we are again now i'm i'm proud to say but in 2005, uh, Jackie, this wonderful, remarkable young woman uh, of the name of Jackie Rodman, uh, founded this organization. And she was 15 at the time, just a young high school student who loved to dance and was trying to do uh, performances and shows and was in a community uh, performance and dancing to a very particular song. And the music went out. And they froze and they stopped and then they waited for the music to come back again. And so they took on the number again and the music failed again. So in a moment of creativity and innovation, like dancers have to be able to do, she just decided to start dancing without music. And then some of the children and the adults in the audience started to say, I want to dance, I want to dance. And so they joined the the audience and started dancing with them. And um, when you hear her tell the story, she says that it was at that point really that she went, oh, wow, they don't have to just be audience members, people can dance and dance can make people laugh and smile and, and change. And so she started working around this notion of how to use dance and hip hop to bring change in the community and young people, uh, and started the first chapter of everybody dance now, uh, which now has, so that was in Santa Barbara, the, the original chapter. And now EDN is in 12 different cities. Um, 
with almost 15 chapters as this has been replicated and turned into a national nonprofit organization. Everybody in the organization is actually a young leader. So the chapter leaders are all volunteers and they're either in high school or the few first few years in college. Most of them are in college. And then so the teachers are paid and the instructors and some of the other um aspects that require funding are are paid as staff members or consultants, but most of the people involved in the day-to-day in the leadership are young people who are out there ready to make a change and wanting to not wait to become an adult leader, but being social change agents now as young, young people. So pretty remarkable. So when the founder had this epiphany, Take me through that that first piece as you understand it about setting up the organization and bringing in the you know her first advisors or her first board. Right, so very critical element, right? So as a young person, fifteen year old, um, which is, makes it even more challenging. But you know, a, a founding founding an organization, a nonprofit board, is is going to be challenging for everyone. But she did precisely what you mentioned earlier. She looked for people she trusted, people who could guide her and support her. Uh, and one of them was her father, for example. So her father was uh, part of the nonprofit board for uh, various years at the very beginning. And he was a business person with a great ethical practice and uh, incredible intelligence. So he was able to to kind of stay away from the potential conflict of interest that can oftentimes come when a board is includes people that are too close to the individual running the organization. Right. So uh, another board member was a close family friend, a lawyer who also she could trust, who also was there to look for for the best interest of them. Now, when the second generation of board members are being uh, invited to join, then there's a question. Well, you know, you're leading the organization, you're the executive director and the person who is responsible for hiring and firing the person is your father. That doesn't work well, right? Sure. So mm-hmm. that's when changes and, you know, uh, the, the founder herself, that was part of the, once they got going, uh, her, part of her focus was how do we make this all, uh, according to best practice and we get new board members in there. Uh, and, you know, the second that she had brought in enough interest, uh, the father resigned and said, okay, mm-hmm. so now you have a group of, uh, people that have committed to this, that have the the appropriate background. And so those two original members who were there to to help the foundation stepped away. And now we have a more diverse um, board member where the the potential conflict of interest is more uh, protected. Let's say the risk is diminished. So what you want to do is, even though this was the case for Everybody Dance Now!, and oftentimes you're going to want someone who can support you and guide you uh, through the first few years of a new organization. You want to try to go to to members of the community who represent the interests of those you are serving as a nonprofit. So they will have the passion and the interest and the commitment because they care for what the organization is doing rather than because they care for you as a person. Mm -hmm. So you want to look for that connection. Otherwise the the potential conflict of interest is, is increased. If, if somebody's really more attached or more concerned about you as an individual, than those you serve, then the decision-making or the, the changes or the challenging that the board should be giving the CEO or the executive director will be a little bit tainted by that or protected. You want a board that supports the organization and its leadership, but that is not afraid to challenge it because at the end of the day, it is the board who has uh, absolute responsibility of ensuring that that organization lives beyond different executive directors or CEOs. On that note, part of the board's responsibility, well, it would mostly fall on project managers or, in your case, chapter leaders and the executive director, but I'm sure the board has a role as well. 
how does EDN measure its success? And, you know, com- and then how does EDN communicate that to either its current or its, its future donors? Yeah, that's a personally, uh, a topic that I'm very passionate about. And it's one, uh, for which, um, uh, the founder, Jackie, actually sought out to me as a board member so I could um, help with this element and kind of bring it into a more sophisticated level. Right now, uh, EDN, at his, as it has been growing uh, very quickly, um, we do, you know, some of the basic things that a lot of nonprofits, uh, young nonprofits do, which is kind of count how many students you have, how many of them are staying, how many, um, are getting involved, are doing the nutritional classes, are doing the cultural learning, whether they themselves are bringing in new students, uh, what kind of impact and how many uh, community outreach events we have. Uh, the students work not only to learn leadership and build self-esteem and healthy lifestyles for themselves as an alternative to drugs or violence or simply being out on the streets, uh, but they we bring them into community uh, and outreach performances. So we go to homeless shelters, we go to uh, elderly homes, we go to different community events, fairs, so that they connect to the broader community and experience that same kind of impact and joy and, and communication via music and dance that Jackie, the founder herself, experienced during that um, that one uh, performance mm-hmm. uh, and and since thereafter, but so so we look at all of that. We uh, have the students uh, fill out questionnaires at the beginning and at the end, a couple of times a year, kind of like how are you feeling? Do you feel empowered to do this? You know, we ask about self self esteem questions, confidence questions, eating habits, that sort of thing. So we're starting to get an idea of. What are we, you know, are we truly transforming positively the lives of these young people in the area of general wellness, self-esteem and leadership opportunities for themselves and community outreach? Now, in in my past uh, role, one of my roles at another nonprofit called Para Los Niños in Los Angeles, California, um, I was there. at the head of everything that had to do with strategic strategic planning and evaluation and impact measurement. So we built a very sophisticated way uh, with software and uh, high-level logic models uh, and detailed aspects across seven different programmatic elements on how to measure what we're really doing and what can we truly say we are having an impact on and what is coincidence or what is not our work itself, but other things that maybe are happening in the children's lives. That requires a lot of money. It requires staff, dedicated Mm -hmm. staff, training, and a lot of money. Uh, So for for smaller, younger organizations, it oftentimes becomes challenging to be able to measure in a way that is uh, clearer, and that truly starts to to evaluate its impact rather than just telling a story. Well, give me an so, example of the the different types of measurement systems and tools. You mentioned, you know, at EDN you use some questionnaires. You're trying to measure some behavioral changes, um, and then at Perlas Niños you were you had a much larger sophisticated system. Where did those two either dovetail, and where did you find real disparity? There's some aspects that in a, in a smaller organizations like, uh, like, like Everybody Dance Now, where most of the funding comes from private donations or small family foundations, where we are at a, a have more liberty to choose based on its mission and vision, the logic model and what to measure. Mm. Mm-hmm. So in that way, we can truly say, okay, so our, our, our mission at EDN is to positively transform the lives of young people through free opportunities for dance, leadership, and involvement. So let's sit down and figure out for us, based on the students we serve, what does it mean to positively transform? 
and operationalize that? Does it mean that they eat better now, that they have higher self-esteem, that they uh, want to be leaders, that they are now interested in college opportunities? What does it truly mean? And then we can determine what aspects we ask, whether through focus groups, interviews, uh, surveys, any of those elements. When you're at a bigger organization that relies heavily on public funds and state funds, then you can, you can and should still do this sort of mission and vision driven logic model and measurement uh, determinants. But at the same time, you are required by most of this public and private foundation grants to look at what they want to see. Mm, of course. <laughs> right? yeah. and, and so each one of them will have a big list of things they want to hear at the end of the year or at the end of the contract or the grant. Did you achieve these goals? And so at that point, it becomes very challenging to measure and balance and make sure you're being uh, responsible in how much time you're utilizing of the staff that is supposed to be serving those clients, whether it be teachers or dance instructors or mental health practitioners, uh, youth leaders, the gamut, right? How much time are they spending truly focusing on the work to help those individuals versus interviewing, survey, doing surveys, collecting surveys, uh, entering data, all of those aspects. Mm. And most importantly, how much time of your clients are you asking them to spend filling out data in whatever ways rather than participating in the program? Well, yeah, rather than being a participant, sure. Exactly. So that's when the leadership and the management is is really key. And that's why it's expensive and you need the right staff to be able to make those ethical calls and those um, really financial responsibility determinants. And some things are just going to have to go unmeasured because we're not there to do a research study. That's what the work we do in academia, which is very different than the nonprofit world. And uh, the donors, it's, it's an education game where Oftentimes, public funds and private funds um, have their own responsibility and measurement uh, requirements and responsibilities. So this has been in the last few years a very interesting uh, balancing act and, and dialogue attempt between those all of those entities so that we can find a way where we can do this responsibly and effectively. Mm. Tell me about a time either at EDN or at Para Los Niños when – you maybe a, you know, I'm thinking of a specific story or a specific moment where you you were doing your measurement, you were doing you know you were paying attention to what was going on, and you said, "Hey, we either really need to change this particular program, or this not this isn't working, and we need to to, to come up with something else." Can you do you have any sort of uh, a story about an aha moment like that? Absolutely, absolutely. That was my favorite part. Uh, within, within <laughs> Failure's that your favorite work. part. That's a very rare. Absolutely, thing. absolutely. So, and I'll tell you why. Because I am driven by this, I was going to call it passion, but it's a little bit of an obsession <laughs> uh, for continuous quality improvement. Mm. High expectations with a view for continuous quality improvement and making sure that that takes place in a way that it is that comes from from data that is real so information of what is truly happening out there on the field in the work in the school in the clinic uh and that it's that it can be determined as a team okay so we have this and this doesn't seem to me working very well let's talk about how we can potentially change it still within the realities of today with our funding with our clients with the with everything that's there and so that's you know that's quality assurance and quality improvement and really when when it comes to to organizations especially those serving um children and families you want to make sure that uh, data and evaluation and impact measurement that the first goal of that is really to inform the organization itself 
what we're doing appropriately, what we're really being successful at, and what we're not doing that well so that we can change based mm-hmm. on that. The, the, the data collecting or the, the impact measurement just to satisfy an external stakeholder because they want to publish the numbers is really can, can be damaging to an organization. So when I do work as a consultant with nonprofit organizations uh, looking to work with this, I tell them the first point of this, of collecting any data, should be that it is useful to you. And to you is not just the executive director, the, the, the ED. It is the actual teacher. It is the therapist. If you can't do that, then you're really not utilizing, uh, responsibly and ethically the time and effort you're asking your students, your families, your staff to spend on collecting this data. Mm. So we used to have, for example, these quarterly meetings, we used to call them CQI meetings, continuous quality improvement meetings. This was at Para Los Niños. And um, so th- this is a not, not a very, let's call it sexy example, but it's a very important example nonetheless. So part of what we do is in the mental health world, uh, you have to be very, very careful with your your files, how you keep files. It is the privacy and the information, right? We keep about children and their families. So part of what we do as part as, as risk management is uh, staff members are, have to review the files uh, once a quarter and they have to do random file picking and looking and making sure that all the information is in there and the contact information for the child is in there and all these different elements. So, you know, we were having a lot of problems with, uh, with the accuracy and the completion of the files. And what that means to an organization providing mental health services is that once your state funder comes in and does this random file, they find all these errors and you are fined. So not only can your organization go on probation, but you can lose the contract and you can have to be obligated to pay a lot of money. And so there's a lot of credibility with your stakeholders and. Absolutely. So for the mental health practitioner who's there with the little boy or girl who's going through all this important thing, their heart and their career is, I just want to spend time with this person, making sure I help them. And the fact that they then have to sit down for two, three hours working on paperwork is not so fun. So it's, it's a tough balance, but it's part of that world. So what you do is you establish uh, staff-driven checking of the files so that once the, the, the funder comes in, you've done all the work. It's all been happening as, a, as an internal practice. So we look at uh, different aspects of how many errors were found in the files when they reviewed them each quarter. This is the staff reviews, how many errors through how many um, files and what kind of errors. So, you know, I, I, I stand there and, and turn paperwork into numbers and say, okay, mm-hmm. so these were the error rates. These were the frequency of errors. These were all of these things. Um, and we compare across sites and we compare across programs. And so we said, you know, so we're looking at, at one particular program and it had a fairly, uh, average error rate. And so I said, okay, so, uh, at first sight, nothing looks too concerning. Nothing looks too big. That's a pretty low, uh, pretty average error rate. Nothing that can't be fixed. Just keep working on it. Right. The director is sitting there and a mm-hmm. staff person and a client and everyone's like, yeah, yeah. It's like, all right, so let's look at the next table and break this down. Uh, not just the program, but the different sites because it's a multi-site program. And suddenly you see that most of the sites are close to a zero error rate, error rate. And one site has like 98% responsibility for that error rate. Hmm. So I say, okay, so we seem to be okay in all of these sites, but this one seems to be a problem. And then you dig deeper and it turns out that once you look at the numbers and just look at the actual person doing the file review, the great majority of the rates of errors, sorry, were from one particular staff person. And so you were able to then make the change, either retrain that person or put them exactly. into a different place. And 
Exactly. So then you can access it. Now, this could have gone under the radar and nobody would have done anything for the longest time. It could go on for a long time. And it was just that person needed either to be retrained or hear about the importance of it or whatever the case may be. Right. So, yeah. And as you say, the the example that you're giving there is what I would call granular. Right. Um, You've also correctly hitting on the, the, the topic of, you know, people are overworked, you have volunteers, you have, you know, this is the nonprofit world. Is there a best practice that you've found in your consulting or, or working with the organizations you've worked with to get people excited about that, to assuage that, that, you know, this isn't something that you do on the margins, that this is really, really important? Yes, absolutely. So what we do is, um, it's, it's, I think that's when the, when the dancer and performer in me came out positively somehow, because, you know, I, I started in this one organization where they said, you know, the, the person previously doing your job, I just, I just, I stopped opening her emails. I would just hit delete, delete, delete. It's just paper and numbers pusher. Ah, yes. Right? Sure. So I was like, okay, how to make quality assurance sexy and fun. <laughs> Let's bring in some music. So um, you have to make things relevant. It has to be relevant to that one in each person you're talking to. And they are invested and they are driven by passion and pride in what they're doing. If you have the right staff, even if they don't find uh, the paperwork very interesting and that's okay, they, they love what they do. And it is because they love what they do that you bring in some of these uh, important elements. And you talk of success more so than of need. So the first thing you talk about is this is looking great. These are doing better. These students, you know, uh, improved their attendance. These children now are safe. Like you talk about all of those elements and you celebrate them and you make the celebration not only an individual aspect, but a group aspect. So we used to give out, uh, plaques and, and gifts and all kinds of things, uh, to make sure that it is relevant and it is a positive thing. So sure. you talk it's, it's about incentives, the, the aspects. It's recognition. It's, Absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But what you want to make sure is that, that you're working at each level so that it is relevant for each level, right? If I, once I have that meeting uh, and I'm presenting the numbers and the data for the executive leadership or during a board meeting, uh, you know, it's it's a different tone. What they want to hear is different. The 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 associations are different. There are details that they don't care about, uh, but more big picture items. Um, you know, how's our GPA? How is the 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 API for the school doing? Um, what's our risk management numbers? And it's very different than if you're at a school talking about. Hey, you guys, overall, this whole class uh, is now reporting that they feel much better, that they're positive. These are some of the things I came out and observed. Uh, teacher so-and-so is doing this aspect with them, and so that's working out great. So congratulations, teacher. And so you have to really make things relevant to the individual you're talking to. It, it makes them stay connected and understand the purpose. Once they they see the change then they're more willing and appreciative of the little extra effort that it takes to to spend time in a meeting or to collect the data or to look at those things because mm. it's supposed to be a tool to make their work easier rather than an additional burden and that's the key aspect there i want to change the direction of our conversation here for for a few minutes you've mentioned a couple of times that you were a dancer Yes. How did you find your way into first nonprofit work and then, you know, becoming a board member for nonprofits and those kinds of things? Was was this always something you intended to do or walk me through how you got here? I I don't think I was that 
clear about things, to be honest. Um, as, as clear as I am now that the nonprofit world, especially that one focusing on children and, and youth issues is absolutely where I belong and where I will continue to be. Um, it, it, it's, it's kind of interesting to think back that it wasn't always that clear. So I, I started off as a, uh, as a young person wanting to learn everything and do everything. I had a million hobbies, you know, I tried to get into everything, uh, and, uh, always very active. And I took my first dance class and it just clicked. I felt at home, uh, and I loved it and I stayed with it for a long time. Uh, I was pretty good at school, you know, good grades, but wasn't very clear on what I wanted to do academically. I knew I wanted to go to college, but wasn't really sure with what or studying what. Um, later in high school, you know, I grew up uh, in Costa Rica with a German father, a Costa Rican mother, mm -hmm. and... Um, going to a trilingual school. So I learned English in, in early high school. So I was terrible at math, but very good at languages. So I was like, all right, this is pretty nice, pretty cool how people learn languages and how some people can speak various languages and other people just one. And what does that mean for a human being? So I was like, I already speak three. Maybe I can do become an interpreter or something along language. So I knew that much. I knew I liked uh, to talk to people. I kind of was like the 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 young student who always everybody came for advice, even people in upper grades. And so, you know, people used to say I should be a lawyer because I could argue anything and everything. But that didn't really, you know, interest me. I was uh, always very engaged with people and their problems and, and trying to figure out problem solve around things and, and making sure people who weren't feeling well were where I could help them feel well. But none of that translated clearly to me about, oh, I should be a psychologist or I should be, uh, you know, an attorney or anything like that. So I actually started going to the University of Costa Rica here, just uh, general studies, still kind of lost. So I was, I'll do English. Uh, and my dancing just became more and more of a passion and I started doing very well and I started teaching here and performing and doing different aspects. I took a trip to visit a friend uh, in who was at the University of Southern California uh, in L.A., um, and take some dance classes. So long story short, I got a scholarship at a private studio in LA and I came back home as a young college student, kind of lost in academia and told my parents I wanted to move to LA to be a dancer. <laughs> Those are the words that every parent wants to hear. Absolutely. Oh yes. Those were some rocky times in my household. <laughs> Of course, every mother who's, you know, mom and dad who had given everything they could to make sure I could have an education and succeed and all of these wonderful things about uh, the, the the blessed, incredible family um, and the childhood that I've been given. I, you know, my mom's worst nightmare, like, you know, I'm a pole dancer somewhere in Los Angeles. <laughs> so, <laughs> that did not happen. Make sure that everybody hears that part of the interview, sure. <laughs> <laughs> please. Um, but, you know, so maybe on another day on a different topic, we talk about how all of that was handled within the family and all of that. But I ended up taking a scholarship in L.A. Um, for six months. So I went, took a, a private dance scholarship in L.A. and um fell in love with, with the city, with the diversity, with the energy and, um, decided to go back. And the only way I could go back is if I went to college, if I went to the university. So, uh, one of those things where things were written, I applied to one school and one school only, and that was USC and they accepted me. There and I go. still don't know to this day how that happened. It's one of those things where, um, you know, it just worked out and it was supposed to be where I ended up and, and where I went. So and you, have, you have a PhD with him. So did you go straight through? 
I know it's funny. So I went and uh, at that point I started to become more interested in psychology and utilizing language and understanding how children learn language. Uh, and I loved psychology at USC. It was absolutely fascinating. I loved the program. So I did my bachelor's degree there and then I said, okay, it's time to go. And then they're like, no, 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 but you're, you're good. We'll give you a scholarship and, and get your doctorate. And, and so I stayed <laughs> and then I wanted to go again and they're like, no, 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 but you can work here and, and, you know, help us with intervention studies in the community with language development and the impact of poverty on children's uh, early learning. And I loved all that work. So I stayed for another few years and, uh, did some research studies and some community impact studies and, uh, evaluated and, and co-designed, um, a curriculum for early language learners, uh, growing up with two languages and, uh, measuring impact of, uh, influence of poverty and, and violence in neighborhoods throughout Los Angeles, mostly with Latino Spanish speaking families, uh, and all throughout somehow kept dancing and, um, then ended up finding the perfect balance for me at Para Los Niños, which was really my first opportunity uh, in the nonprofit world. So my, my world in academia and the research world was critical. And, and the reason I loved it was because I was working at the research lab with uh, this amazing, amazing woman called Joanne Farver, and she's still there in the Department of Psychology. And uh, her research was less about sitting in front of a computer and punching in data and numbers and more about going out into the community and measuring what was happening and trying to figure out how to make things better. Uh, and, and so that was early on kind of what, what made sense to me. And so I tried to look for that opportunity outside of academia and, um, Para Los Niños offered just that as a nonprofit serving the community uh, with childcare centers, with charter schools, with mental health and youth uh, centers. And so I ended up there. I was given a great opportunity to start there as director of quality assurance, kind of utilizing my evaluation uh, skills and the aspects I learned through research and language development in at USC. And then I just fell in love. Then you're just hooked for life as far as I'm concerned. Mm. And what's the, so now you've, you're, you're a board member at EDN. Um, what's the next, you know, three to five years look like for you? Where are you taking your career? Hmm. We'll see. So I just added a, a very interesting aspect to my career, uh, one that usually comes a little earlier in life. But after uh, a long career of dedicating myself to making children's lives better and improving uh, other children's um opportunities, I now have the great joy and responsibility of helping my own child. Mm -hmm. So uh, we brought on uh, our beautiful uh, Theodore uh, to this world to join our family. He's um, a year and three months as of yesterday. So uh, thank you. So I am I am loving life with the most challenging job anybody could ever have. I am uh, testing everything I ever said about child development with my own child to see if how much of it is just books and how much can be really happening. Um, and so what I'm doing is really trying to spend a lot of my time uh, with him and uh, staying in my career in Costa Rica. Most of this work, as you've heard me talk about, was in L.A. Then I was in Virginia and Washington, D.C. Uh, with the National Youth Employment Coalition, working at that nonprofit for a while. And since last year, we are here in Costa Rica. So really spending uh, my professional time outside from uh, mommyhood, uh, trying to learn more specifically what the needs and the challenges are here in Costa Rica, how to kind of get involved and help uh, organizations, institutions, and families needing support. So I'm starting to do that as a consultant. Uh, 
and as a volunteer trying to just see um, what the needs are. And um, during my early career, I worked uh, privately with uh, families as a behavioral uh, consultant and as a behavioral management consultant and child development issues with families with uh, maybe um, behavioral issues or developmental challenges. So kind of doing training and capacity building for parents or families or schools that don't quite feel like they're, they're working in alignment or doing well for, for the children involved. So I have a couple of clients that I'm seeing, some families that I'm helping out uh, that way. And that can be as simple as my child doesn't pay attention and when I punish him, he doesn't listen and, and, and he screams and yells and hits his brother to, you know, more serious uh, developmental issues like autism uh, or other aspects like that that require a little bit more uh, of a different kind of perspective. So that's kind of where I am now and, and we'll see what the next few years uh, develop into. Excellent. So last question that I always ask every interviewee, you've had a serendipitous career like so many other people. You know, yes. Opportunities were presented. Uh, you had the, the wherewithal to, to grab hold of those opportunities and, and it's produced success for you. Is there a piece or a couple of pieces of advice that you give to either young people that you work with um, or maybe somebody who's considering about a career uh, moving into the nonprofit sector, pieces of advice that you'd give them about how to create success for themselves? Sure. I mean, in, in some degree, um, I feel kind of humbled and honored to even be asked such a question, right, to get to a point where, where um, hopefully your advice, um, you're being asked for advice and, and hopefully it does uh, help anyone out there. But um, based on my, my experiences and my opportunities, uh, I would say early on, because I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do or what major in college or what title in a career that translated into, I, I felt kind of lost and, and a little scared at times. And so I would say, don't be scared. Don't be scared at all. Just, just go. If that door opens and it seems like you have an interest and a passion for it, step into it, keep your expectations high, um, you know, be ethical in your practice and don't be afraid of, of trying to create change or following a good, strong leader in change making and being innovative and looking for solutions. Um, and you know, if, if you, once you get the opportunity to lead, make sure you're leading with your heart, just lead with the heart and you'll be okay. Thank you so much for your time today, Stephanie. Thank you. My pleasure, Stephen. You've been listening to Terms of Reference, a weekly podcast from aidpreneur.com. Find us on iTunes or at www.aidpreneur.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.